When you think of the word family, what words come to mind? Like right now, there's probably some words popping up into your head. Maybe for some, it's safe, laughter, love, gift, friendship, life, trust, connection. Maybe for some of you, you're hearing, no, no, I don't hear those words. I hear drama. That's a little bit of everybody's family, right? Fear. Maybe there's hurt when you think about family and some pain, some brokenness. And, and I'm guessing for most of us, there's, it's actually probably a mix of all those things, right? In our passage today, Jesus is going to declare and define who his family is And there's going to be this incredible opportunity for all of us, no matter what we've done, no matter who we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter how messed up your family is, or maybe how perfect your family has been, we all, Jesus is going to invite us to experience family as he has intended it. And so, so far in our walking through the gospel, we've seen lots of people around Jesus, right? There's been these crowds. We've even seen some people come against Jesus in opposition, Today, Jesus is going to draw a line in the sand on who actually makes up his inner core, his family. And one thing you'll find with Jesus is there's no such thing as neutrality with him, right? You are either with him as family or you're on the outside. So let's jump right into this text to see this king's family. And so we, we read it earlier. Let's look, let's look back at um, verse 20. And you're going to see the words um, up here on the screen. We also have Bibles underneath the seats around you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, an English version that's good and readable, we'd love for you to take that as our gift to you. We think everybody should be able to have a, a Bible and to, to be able to read the words right there. So as we jump into this verse, let's read it together. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Okay, so a little bit of context, right, so, that, so we can understand where we are um, in the story. Conflict and animosity have been rising up against Jesus. In fact, as we closed our passage last, it said that the Pharisees were getting together uh, with the Herodians, were kind of in cahoots with the Roman government to plot Jesus's death, right? That, that's conflict, isn't it? There's these group of men going, let's figure out how to get rid of this guy. And so as the tension is mounting, Jesus and his disciples withdraw from Capernaum, and they move a little bit north up to a different part of the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a big lake. But no sooner can they withdraw away from all of the, the, the commotion and the crowds, but the crowds follow him. It's like he can't get away from them, right? And a few verses back, we were in verse 20, a couple verses back, it says that these crowds were coming from all over. And so it lists a bunch of towns that you're probably like, I've never even heard of those places, right? So a couple of the places we hear about are places like Tyre and Sidon. And what's important about them is that these were Gentile nations to the north, right? Jesus is a Jew. He's, he's here speaking mostly to Jews. And there's these cities that are, that are not Jewish, and they want to know and to, and to hear more about Jesus. And so they've come down. And we hear about places like um, Idumea and Galilee, which these were multi-ethnic, multi-racial nations where they're kind of like crossroads on these trading paths. And so they tend to be uh, multi-ethnic and um, multi-racial, mixed uh, with Jew and Gentile and just kind of the the, the beautiful colors of God's handiwork um, in creation. 
We also see that there's people in these crowds coming from Jerusalem and Judea, which would, which would be these like, like kind of pure Jewish um, areas. What you need to know is this spans 150 miles from north to south. That, that's not even covering the, 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 the geographical area of, uh, uh, of, that, um, of that territory. And so despite serious opposition, Jesus' reputation is expanding and it's growing and it's being pulled from new regions. And remember, this is before the internet. This is before social media. They don't have cars. There's no modern anything. But news about him is traveling and people want to come and hear about what Jesus is doing. And so when we pick up our story, they're back at the ministry headquarters um, in Capernaum, and it says that crowds have gathered again. And Mark tells us that it was so packed with people, and the demands of ministry were so intense that they couldn't even eat. You ever had one of those busy days where you just, like, you kind of looked up, and you're like, oh man, it's six o'clock in the evening, and I haven't stopped to eat for one minute. That's the kind of day that Jesus has been having. What we need to know about these crowds is, uh, a good way to think about them is as fans, okay? Fans want to be around Jesus. They're here mainly because they're after what Jesus can do for them. A fan says something like this. Maybe they don't say it out loud, but kind of in their heart, it's like, I like you as long as you do what I want. Fans are excited about Jesus and at times are even physically close to Jesus, but we're going to find that they're fair-weathered, right? They're fickle. It's like uh, I grew up in Houston, and uh, like I can say this because I'm from there. Um, Houston has a bunch of fair-weathered fans. Like when our teams are doing great, they're like all about I mean, the Astros won last night. That place was packed. People stood for the entire game. I remember growing up going to Astros games, and it was like nobody was there because they were awful. Right? I mean, they were just like giving out tickets. Like, we just want to put some butts in the seats. That's how it was. I mean, you could buy a nosebleed seat and walk down behind home plate. There was nobody there. They're fair weathered and fickle. And what they do is they never want to move past the faceless crowd to being named as disciples. They just kind of want to stay around and gain from Jesus. You see, fans are around, but they lack the intimacy and relationship with Jesus. Friends, we've been saying this over and over, and it bears repeating again. Proximity and excitement about Jesus does not equal intimacy and relationship with Jesus. Do you see the difference there? Proximity and excitement about Jesus does not equal intimacy and relationship with Jesus. Now, I'm not just talking about the traditional, like when we think about the disciples, we think, okay, there were 12 of them, right, who became apostles. Now, they're important. But, there's all, but from the crowd, Jesus starts really drawing uh, disciples, these devoted followers of Jesus. You see, lots of people moved from the crowd to being his disciples. The gospel will name some of them. And so you'll see these other names other than the 12 come up throughout the gospels. At one point, Jesus sends out 72 people to go do the work of ministry, right? There's this whole crew of women who become his disciples. And the Bible names them specifically. People like Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and Mary, the mother of James and Salome. In fact, the Bible repeatedly says that these women were helping fund and support the ministry. They were committed. Later, when Jesus rises from the dead, who gets the honor of seeing him first? It's these women disciples who get to bear the very first testimony about Jesus. 
We see in the book of Acts after the resurrection that there's 120 people in Jerusalem or who are part of the very first church who are devoted followers of Jesus. You see, people moved from the crowd to the committed. But by and large, many more stayed in the comfort and the distance of the crowd as fans. But it won't be long before these fans and these crowds will turn on him. In fact, a few verses back, if you look at verse 9, Mark says that the crowds were pressing in on Jesus for miracles and healing. And Jesus tells the disciples, hey, get a boat ready. Like, as I see all these people coming up, pressing on the shoreline, I'm going to need a place to stand. And so maybe if we put the boat back a little bit on the water, I'll at least have a place to stand. And verse 9, we don't have it up on the screen today, but it says that um, he needed a place to stand lest they crush him. The Bible actually, Mark says they were coming in so intensely that they would crush him. You see, right now, while it benefits them, the crowds are excited about Jesus and they want to be close to him. They want the benefits of Jesus without the cost. They want the benefits of Jesus without the relationship and without actually following him. But what happens when those benefits stop? What happens when they aren't getting what they want? Well, if we look, forward, look further into Mark, we see that the crowds will actually crush him. But this time, it won't be crushed up against the sea. This time, Jesus is going to be crushed up against the cross. Spoiler alert, right? In just a couple years, just, and if you're like, well, I didn't know it was going to happen. Um, in just a couple years, the crowds are going to press up against him again, and they're going to cry out, crucify him. They're going to be after blood. And Jesus will be crushed for our iniquity and our sin. And this great irony, the very ones who uh, crucify him are the very ones he's actually come to save. And so all of their excitement will quickly turn to incitement. Crowds become mobs. Proximity provides opportunity, and they're going to kill him. See, these fans want to be around Jesus until they stop getting what they want. So not only are there fans, but let's, look, let's keep working in Mark, and we'll see this other group that comes around Jesus as well. Look with me at verse 21. It says this, When his family heard it, they went out to seize them, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So here's what's happened. So remember, we've got the first part of the story. Um, these, these crowds are, are coming. They, it's so busy they can't eat. And his family starts to hear about it. See, news travels even to Nazareth, and Jesus' family hears what's going on. They hear probably good news, right? Like, oh man, Jesus is really coming up in the world. They probably also hear a lot of rumors and things about Jesus. And so their conclusion is he's out of his mind. Like something must not be right. We always knew there was something different about that boy, right? Their conclusion is he's a lunatic. And so they start to make their way to Capernaum to have a family talk. You ever had these family talks, right? It's really like an intervention. You know what I mean? That's what they're doing. They're coming and they're saying, it's, it's time to take Jesus back to Nazareth. He needs to just get a hammer back in his hand. Maybe this whole ministry thing is not working out for him. Now, before we, 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 we throw that first stone of judgment and cast judgment on his family, let's be quick to ask ourselves this question. Have we ever been embarrassed by Jesus? Like, you don't have to raise your hand. But just like in the quietness of our, have you ever been embarrassed about being connected to Jesus? Have you ever thought that maybe Jesus was getting in the way of your agenda? Has Jesus' plan for your life been different than what you wanted? See, some of these things are stirring up in the family, and they think, man, it's time to take them back home. 
But see, Scripture is never meant to be a place for us to go, oh, look at how they judged. I'm glad I'm not like them. No, no. Scripture is never meant to be a place of, of putting ourselves up on a pedestal. Scripture is actually meant to be an MRI. It's meant to scan our hearts. It's meant to, 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 for us to be able to look at ourselves and examine kind of the questions and the motives and the desires of our heart. That's what it's supposed to do. Okay, let's keep going. Let's look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now, some of you may have noticed that abrupt scene change, right? We were talking about Jesus' family, and now all of a sudden we're talking about these scribes. It's like, did, did, Mark, did like a piece of Mark get cut off right there? This is actually one of Mark's favorite literary devices. People call it a Markin sandwich, and here's what that means. It's where you start one story, you insert a second story, and then when that one's done, you come and fill, you, you finish the first story. Like a sandwich has two pieces of bread with like salami and sopracetta and capicola in the middle. Well, that's what I put in my sandwich. I don't know what you people put in your sandwiches, okay? So whatever works for you. Maybe it's roast beef and cheddar, whatever, turkey, the vegans in the room, you put mushrooms and stuff in there, right? Okay? But a sandwich has bread, two pieces of bread, gluten-free, Margo, and then it has something in the middle. That's what Mark is doing here. So in this sandwich, we have the bread. It's Jesus with the crowd and his family on the way for that big family talk they want to have. And now we have the meat and the cheese, okay? Now the scribes show up. These are religious leaders, and they're coming with these very charged uh, accusations that Jesus is demon-possessed. Now, this is not a neutral fact-finding mission. They're not coming in going, hey, we've heard about you. We kind of want to see what you're all about. We'd love to hear what's been going on over the last few months. No, no, no. They have come from Jerusalem over 80 miles away, and their whole goal is to shut Jesus down. This has gone from like a local thing to a federal thing, right? These are the big dogs, right? This, this is like the head honchos of, of, of religious elitism and in Ju- in, in, in Jewish culture. They have brought in, um, you know, the feds, so to speak, right? They accuse him not merely of being like possessed by a local de- They say he's possessed by Satan himself. That's what's meant by the word Beelzebub there. In other words, they're saying Jesus is not in his right mind. Something has taken over him. He's crazy. Kind of similar to what his family is thinking about him. Their goal is to discredit Jesus with the people. You see, for them, they know there's no question Jesus has power, right? Like, the, like when you have that many rumors, like it can't be made up. You know what I mean? Like there's enough going on that they've, they've, they've spoken to people about, uh, about the healings and the miracles that he's done. And so they know, okay, there's something going on. There's some kind of power. But it can't be from God because he would have told us, right? We would know. And so they go, okay, it must be demons. must be Satan. If they can discredit his source and power, then their logic is people will stop following him. Okay? Now let's see how Jesus responds. It's one of my favorite things in the Bible, how Jesus responds to opposition. Look at verse 23. And he called them to him, these, these uh, scribes, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, which means his com- it is coming to an end. No one 
can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, what, binds that strong man. Then indeed, he can come and plunder his house. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is dropping logic on him, right? He's going, what you say makes no sense. He's like, why would Satan fight against himself? Do you hear yourself? That makes no sense. That would be suicidal. The obvious and logical conclusion is that Jesus cannot be in collusion with Satan because Satan would never be so foolish as to attack himself. A house divided cannot stand, right? It's like a, everybody just knows that to be true. The only way that Satan's power, Jesus goes on to say, the only way that Satan's power could be restricted is if he were bound, right? That's the only way you could enter into this man's house and take from him. And for that to happen, one stronger than the strong man has to come in. Again, that makes sense, right? If you're going to bind somebody, you've got to be stronger than that person. That just, again, is patently obvious. Jesus is saying, yeah, Satan's power is diminishing. He is bound. But he hasn't bound me. I've actually come and bound him. I'm the one who's come with power to bind Satan, plunder his house, and take back what is mine. In our earlier verses, if the fans, the crowd represents the fans, now the scribes represent Jesus's foes. These are the enemies. These, they're coming against Jesus at every level. You see, they can't stand the, the, the company that Jesus keeps. They can't stand what he's doing. They're jealous of his following. They're envious of his authority and his power, and they have no intention of following him and giving up their power and control. They're trying to accuse Jesus of being bound by Satan. And what Jesus is saying is, no one can bind me. Nobody can force me into their agenda. And you see, by the end of Mark, again, I keep giving away the ending, but it's important to keep this in view. We're going to see that Jesus, the only way Jesus can be bound is when he allows it. You can't bind Jesus. The only way he can be bound is if he submits himself to being bound. And we know that at the end, he will allow himself to be bound so that we can be set free. So after he schools them with this logic and destroys their argument, how does he end his response? Let's look at verse 28. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, all your sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, whoever blasphemies um, against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, let's break this down. Jesus first begins with good news. Did you hear that? Jesus starts with grace, not condemnation. God is gracious and slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. When God reveals himself to us, it's one of the primary ways he describes himself. He over and over, all throughout scripture, he says, you want to know who I am? Here's who I am. I am gracious. I am merciful. I'm abounding in steadfast love. We, uh, we read our kids the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, in the evenings, and um, we've kind of worked our way through that several times now. And one of the phrases that comes up over and over throughout the book when they're describing to, to, to the kids, and to me really, who God is, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones um, says it like this. She says, God has a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that beautiful? When you want to think about all the adjectives that describe God's love, it is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, 
It's an always and forever kind of love. Jesus told us a few weeks ago, I've not come for the righteous, but for the sick. When Jesus confronts them, he doesn't shame them or bring guilt upon them. He actually says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even you, even the scribes right here who are seeking to discredit me, calling me a lunatic, calling me demon-possessed, you, you guys are out there plotting my very death. You, even you, I will forgive you. That's grace, getting what they don't deserve. It's a radical statement that Jesus makes, that every sin can be forgiven. That there's literally no sin beyond God's reach. There's nothing that God will not forgive. Who needs to hear that today in this room? Who needs to know that, there, that there's nothing you've done that is beyond God's forgiveness? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know what's crazy? Is some people think that that's bad news. I think that's the greatest news that has ever been told. And some people think that's really bad news. Did you know that? Because we like to create these categories in our head that there's good people and bad people. There's us and there's them. You might have heard people say like, yeah, I know, everybody sins, nobody's perfect. But there's some real sickos out there, right? Maybe you've thought that before and that there's no way God can forgive them. But here's the scandalous news of the gospel. Jesus just said it. He said, God's grace is like an ocean. And when it rises up, it comes like a tidal wave and nothing can stop it. When God's grace comes, you get drenched. So what that means is pornography, rape, murder, self-righteousness, lying, stealing, adultery, fornication, sexual immorality in all of its many ways, selfishness, anger, lust, idolatry, blasphemy, greed. I mean, there, like nothing, there's nothing I could put on my screen right now that God says I won't forgive. The gospel says there are no good people and bad people. There's just people. There's all of us, and all of us need his grace and his mercy. Anyone who acknowledges their sin, anyone who acknowledges their need for a Savior will find in God abundant provision. He is not lacking in forgiveness. But that's not all that Jesus says, right? He, he gives the good news first, and then he comes with a little bit of bad news. He says, the persistent, outright unbelief will not be forgiven. So maybe you were going, wait a minute, I thought you said nothing will be unforgiven, right? Okay, that sounds like a contradiction. It's not. Let's reread those words. He says this, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Let's unpack this. This is, uh, in, in discussions, been called the unforgivable sin. Maybe you've actually heard, has anyone heard that term before, the unforgivable sin? Okay, anybody ever felt like, did I, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Okay, all right, people, like, I get asked that question all the time as a pastor. Many people have been tormented. I, I hope today you walk out not tormented by that anymore, okay? People want to know, did I commit the unforgivable sin? I get emailed just like perfect strangers. Like, I don't even know why they care that I'm, like, they'll ask me, like, hey, pastor, you're a pastor. Do you think I've committed the unforgivable sin? I'm like, I don't know you. How, how would I know you? Know? Let's remember the context, Okay. These guys, the scribes, have attributed what God is doing through Jesus to who? To Satan. They're looking at what God is doing through Jesus and saying, that cannot be what God is doing. That's only the work of the devil. They're rejecting Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus is warning them, do not be so hard-hearted 
and persistent to attribute to Satan what God has done. The person who persists in hardening his heart against God, who hardens their heart against the work of the Spirit, who denies the provision of Jesus as Savior, that person is outside the reach of God's forgiveness. Why? Because they don't want it. That makes sense. They don't, they're not pursuing that kind of forgiveness. See, Jesus is not warning uh, against making some kind of off comment. He's not saying, hey, if you doubt, if you question, that's, that's not at all what he's saying. He's warning against a hardened heart that rejects God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Let me be really clear. There's not a single person in Scripture who pursues God and asks God for forgiveness where God says, sorry, not for you. There's not a single passage of scripture where God rejects someone's uh, petition for forgiveness. Not one. It's not so much that God refuses to forgive a person as much as that person is refusing God's forgiveness. Do you see the difference there? They won't find forgiveness because they're not looking for it. It's been said that people with a tender conscience will be concerned if they've committed the sin. Let me put it this way. If you've been if you have felt concerned that you've committed the sin, it's very likely you haven't. I'm telling you, you haven't. The fact that you want God's forgiveness, the fact that you're going, man, I just want to I, I honor you, Lord. I want to please you, God says. Your heart is for him. You want his forgiveness. Jesus is saying, be weary when you stiff arm God. When you say, I want nothing to do with you. That's what God is saying here. If you have questions about this, I would, I'd love to talk to you about it. You should not leave here today feeling like maybe you've committed this sin. Now, Jesus is willing to speak truth and love to his enemies. He has the backbone to call them out, to say, look, this is reality. This is truth. And he stands up against their opposition. And remember, he first offers them grace. He says, even what you're doing right now can be forgiven. But be, let me be really clear. He's like, don't walk away here with a hard heart. Don't walk down that path. He says to his enemies, God will forgive you, but you have to recognize what you're doing and turn away. Fans want to be around Jesus. Foes want to be against him. Now let's look at this last category of Jesus's family. Look with me at uh, verse 31. We'll have the words up here. We're kind of returning back to the end of that sandwich, right? We're, we're back at the bottom piece of the bread. It says this. And his mother and his brothers came, and they're standing outside. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, and they're seeking you. Okay, Mark finishes with that last piece of bread. He says, Now Jesus' family has arrived, and they're looking for him. Okay, they can't get in, and so they send somebody to go in and find Jesus. Maybe they stay outside because they can't get in. Maybe they stay outside because they don't want to cause a scene. Whatever the case, they remain on the outside. Now look what it says in verse 33. And he answered them, who, this is Jesus speaking, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those around him, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Anybody find his response shocking? Right? Like, they, this is a culture that highly values family. I think we're in a culture that highly values family as well. He redefines priorities here. 
Now, let me be clear. Jesus doesn't sever his relationship with his family. We actually go on in, in, in church history to find out that many of his family actually become devoted followers of him. He's not saying, I'm out on biological family. That's not what he's doing. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't put them down. He doesn't insult them. What he is doing is he's emphasizing the priority of the community of faith as real, lasting, and ultimate family. Earthly families are incredibly important. But Jesus is saying there's another kind of family that takes priority. Jesus gives a higher priority to the spiritual family in the call of following Jesus as his disciples. And what he's saying is there are going to be times in life where following him will take precedence over like, like uh, uh, priorities that you have with your real family. He's saying what defines uh, his family are those who do the will of God. Those are real and lasting family. You see, where fans are around Jesus for what he can give them, and foes are against Jesus in opposition, family is defined by this. Those who are with Jesus, those who are for Jesus, and those who are obedient to Jesus. Let's look, uh, we're going to actually jump back to verse 13, because I think it gives some insight in what it means to become a disciple and follow Jesus as family. Okay, we'll have the words up here. So this happened earlier, uh, probably a few days earlier um, from from our storyline. And so it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to them those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So what's going on? Jesus, out of these crowds that are following him, he takes 12 of them up on the mountain after this long day of ministry. And it says that he takes up there with him those whom he desired and that came to him. I love that. Jesus calls and they respond. And it says that he appointed the 12. Now, when we look at the Bible, we see these 12 disciples, right? They become um, his apostles. It's really a strange group of men. Four of them were fishermen. One was a despised tax collector. Another was a member of a radical, a radical and violent political party known as the Zealots. Six of them, check this out, we know practically nothing about them. They're obscure. We, they, they, they don't become these like, old, like superstars um, that we know, like have books written about, right? They kind of live in obscurity. All of them were laymen. There was not an, an expert in the law. There wasn't this, ringing, uh, this preacher um, in the group. Yet it's with this group of everyday, ordinary people that Jesus establishes his church and brings his good news to the ends of the earth. In fact, one of those men will even betray him. He was with Jesus, but we find out he was not for Jesus. You can actually be with Jesus and not for Jesus, which should be a warning to us. Here's what I mean. This goes back, we find out he's really just kind of a fan or a foe, right? You can be around Jesus, but not have intimacy and relationship with Jesus. Now, the verb that we looked at here, it says he appointed them. That word in the Greek literally means to make. So what's going on here? He makes them apostles. Jesus is kind of doing this creation act. You see, they are his disciples and they're his family because he makes them family. And it also says that he names them as his apostles. Did you see that in verse 13? It says he appointed them as apostles and he named them as apostles. And so taken together, this making and this naming is really significant because what's happening is a change is taking 
place. God picks them not because they deserve it. It's not because they're all stars. It's not because they bring a lot to the table. It's not because they were good men. It's not because of their resume. It's not their pedigree. It's not their birth order. He chooses them, listen to me, simply as an act of grace. That's all it is. He decides to set his favor and affection on them. It's not, and he does that with us too. He sets his favor and his affection on you and me, not because of what, we done, what we've done, but because of who he is. He's compassionate, he's loving, and he loves to pick people like me who don't deserve it. He loves to pick people like you who don't deserve it. And as he's naming them as apostles, he is giving them a new identity. Think about it. He's naming them as apostles. What do our names do? Our names give us identity. And in fact, uh, I don't have time to go through every single one of them, but he actually changes a lot of their names. Simon, he calls Peter. He calls him the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. And he says uh, to James and John, he gives them the nickname Sons of Thunder. I'd like that nickname. That sounds awesome. I, I like a cool sleeve with that one, right? Sons of Thunder. Man, that's an awesome nickname. Levi, remember he was the uh, tax collector? He changes his name to Matthew. No longer should you be known as a tax collector. Your name is Matthew. What does he do? He writes a book of the Bible. Naming someone is this act of great importance and power because our names kind of, they have this essence about them. And that's still true today, right? If you've seen Andy walking around here, she's pregnant with our fifth. It's like the hardest thing to name a person, right? Because you're like, they're going to have this name their whole life. And you're thinking about, okay, how are people going to make, how can people make fun of that name? Like, are they going to get teased with that name, Right? And you're trying to think like you've got all these hopes and dreams for this child. And you're thinking, man, let's give them a name that has this like beautiful story. Like it's strong. That means brave and strong and uh, bright light, son of grace, like his name means. Right? It's hard. He's going to have it for the rest of his life. Think about when people start a company, right? They obsess over the name, right? People are going to interact with the name. And when they come up with a new product line, like they, it matters what it's called. A bad name can sink a company or a product line. If you remember back in Genesis 1, when God is creating the heavens and the earth, how does he do it? Does he create the light and then kind of sit back and go, okay, what should I call that? No. He actually names it into existence. He says, let there be light, and there was light. Do you see what's going on there? The naming actually creates the reality. When we name, we're describing something and putting our hopes into that thing, right? We're hoping it becomes like this. When God creates, when he names, he actually determines the nature of the thing he names. Jesus is fully man and fully God. And when he names, he creates. When he's taking these ordinary group of men and says, I name you as my apostles, he is infusing into them a new identity, a new purpose, and a new meaning. When Jesus names, he creates. He determines the nature of it. He takes the ordinary and he transforms it into the extraordinary. And he does it by naming. And everyone in this room who's his family actually gets named by Jesus too. Those who trust in Christ get a new name. Who does he call us? He calls us sons and daughters of the most high God. He calls us saints. You ever feel like a saint? Guess what? When Jesus says it, it's a reality. 
He calls us holy and beloved children of God. He calls us forgiven. And guess what? When he calls you forgiven, you are. It creates that reality. When he calls you lovely, you're lovely because he calls you lovely. He calls us his. And so we are. When he names us, he creates that new reality in us. Everybody in this room, including me, longs to be someone. Every one of us does. Listen to how Tim Keller says it. It's beautiful. He says like this. We can't live with just being part of the faceless crowd. We can't live with being part of the mob. Science will tell you that you're just a wave upon the sand. Science will tell you that you're a dewdrop going back to the ocean and that someday your individuality will be gone pretty soon. But we can't live like that. He says every single one of us needs an identity. We need a sense of self, a sense that there is a distinct value and a distinct purpose to us. Now don't miss this. We need to know that there's something that makes us distinct as individuals, that we're not simply just some wave upon the sand, that we're not just a dewdrop going back to the ocean. We need to know that there's something different, unique, and beautiful about us. Friends, when God names us, he gives us an identity, and it's filled with purpose and beauty and love. Do you remember what he said in verse 14, their primary purpose was as disciples? So he names them, and he makes them apostles, and this is what he says that their primary responsibility is. If we can get verse 14 back up here, I want them to see it. Look what he says. It's okay. Oh, it's out of commission? Okay, all right. I'll just reread, I'll read it to you. He says this. And he appointed the 12, whom he also named as apostles. Listen, this is their primary purpose. So that they might be with him. You would think like the first job as a disciple is go preach, go do this, right? What did he say the fir- your first and primary responsibility is as a follower of Jesus is? Be with him. I love that. I'm such a doer. This is gospel to me. He says, I'm appointing you here to be with me. Here's how I would phrase it. Being precedes doing for him. Being with Jesus precedes doing for Jesus. He is interested in relationship more than he's interested in results. You see, what distinguishes a Christian is not what they do, but that God is with them, that we are with God. The whole point of Jesus dying on the cross is not simply that you go to heaven when you die. That that happens, yes and amen. The whole point is that you would be with Jesus. We're about to come up into Christmas, right? And we sing the songs, Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. That's the gospel, that God is with us. Yes, we have, we have, we have a, a, a role to fill, to preach the gospel both in word and in deed, but our primary responsibility is simply to be with Jesus, to be with him. As we close, I, I just, I, we have to ask, are you here today as a fan? Do you like being around Jesus? Do you, is, is this kind of a hobby You want to be around him? You like kind of some of the teachings of Jesus? Or is there a place in your heart where you're really a foe, right? None of you seem to be people who are like out loud, like bashing Jesus, but maybe there's places in your heart where you're you're against him. Jesus says you can stop being against him and you can stop being around him because there's grace for all those who ask for forgiveness and he doesn't shame you in the process. He actually welcomes you in as family. And for those of you here who are family, 
I don't want to ask, how are you doing in serving Jesus? We'll get to that down the road. I want to know, what does it look like for you to be with Jesus? Like real life, every week, what does it look like? Is there space in your week where you're just with him? Where you're praying? Where you're reading the scriptures? Where you're learning more about him? Where you're just going, I've got to spend time with him. When our being with Jesus is thriving, our doing for Jesus will follow. When we're healthy here with Christ, you'll see all of those things flowing out from it. We're in this together. Let's be marked as the people who are with Jesus and for Jesus and obedient to Jesus. Let me pray.